excited and honored to be here hanging out with you guys. My wife and I have been in town for a couple days enjoying the city, hanging out, relaxing. This is my wife right here on the front. Stand up, baby. Say hi to everybody. That is my girlfriend, my wife, and my baby mama all in that order, and so that's the order you gotta shoot for. And so, man, we're really excited to be here hanging out with you guys at this incredible, incredible church today. Like Pastor Jeremy said, I have the privilege of being the lead pastor at Living Church in Mansfield, Texas. Mansfield is South uh, DFW. It's just right under Arlington. And, uh, and so, man, we have a blast with everything God's doing there. Now, Living Church, we get excited and so I heard that y'all are the hype service out of the two. So don't be showing yourselves looking bad. Come on, we gotta have some energy and praise God this morning. Back at Living Church today, our executive pastor, Pastor Whitney, is preaching. One of the reasons that Pastor Jeremy and I connected so easily is because we have powerful lady executives. Give it up for Talia, thankful for her and her leadership. You know, the reason that Pastor Jeremy is able to lead and do everything that he does is because he has somebody who would help carry and support the vision and tell it, you're a blessing to this house, you're a blessing to this church, to this city. What you do really goes unseen, and so I'm really thankful for you and your heart. Give up one more time that God has blessed you with a great executive pastor and a great team here. You know, I love Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Janet, Rachel and I, we've learned a lot from them. You know, the great thing about Pastor Jeremy is that he is a great leader. He's a thinker and a strategist. But not only is he all those things, he's also spirit-led. Amen? He listens to the Spirit of God and he flows in what the Lord wants to do. And a lot of times as pastors, it's really easy to lean one of those directions. We've got some guys that are great strategists, but they don't really listen to the Spirit. And you guys have a blessing in this house in your pastor that he's a little bit of both and he's half crazy. And so like he's fun and wild and he's full of energy and he's a fun guy. And so I'm honored that he would ask us to come and speak today. Before we jump into the message, let me pray for this service. Father, we thank you so much for your love over our lives. God, as we open up your word, we ask that you would speak. Lord, we know that your word doesn't return void. What I have to say is very little, but what you have to say this morning is great and mighty. So let us walk out feeling empowered and encouraged in your love. We thank you, Lord, in your name we all said, amen. Now, I wanna start with a science experiment. So everybody take your hands and go like this, go like this. And on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you to clasp your hands together and interlock your fingers. Ready, one, two, three. Now, I want you to look at which thumb is on the top. Notice which thumb is on the top, get it. Now, put your hands back apart. Now, I want on the count of three for you to do it again, but put the other thumb on top this time. Ready, one, two, three. Feels weird, right? It feels a little odd, like this is not how life is supposed to be. Okay, one more time, do it the right way. One, two, three. Now, that feels a little bit more comfortable, a little safer that way. Now, if you look down, chances are your dominant hand, that's the thumb that's on the top. Well, y'all, some of y'all are weird, but for most of us, our dominant hand would be on the top. That our, for me, I'm right-handed. Where all my righties at? All my righties in the house? Okay, where all my lefties at? Lefties, y'all are usually a little louder and crazier and goofier, and so lefties, they always gotta stick together. And you know, for most of us, we have a dominant hand. 90% of people are right-handed, 90%, while only 10% are left-handed. Because of this statistic, uh, people that make notebooks build notebooks how they do. They put the little spiral thing on the left, so us righties don't even know the inconvenience. But you lefties, your forearm be getting all torn up, right? When you're writing in a spiral notebook. Scissors are made for righties. Can openers 
are made for righties. A lot of clothing, buttons, and zippers are easily or accessible for a right-handed person because society understands that most people have a right-hand dominant setup. And if you're right-handed, you have more power, you have more strength, you have more agility, more dexterity in the right hand. If you're left-handed, you're stronger there. You open doors with your left. You might write with your left. You would throw a ball with your left. It's easier to, there's more fluidity of motion in whatever hand is dominant. But there's this small percentage of people that are ambidextrous. Ambidextrous means that you can do both things, all things equally well with both hands. And only one out of a thousand people are truly ambidextrous. There's uh, something called duality of hands, and some people have duality of hands. So maybe you would write with your left, but you'd throw a ball with your right. You might bat with your right, but golf with your left. But that's duality of hands. But to be ambidextrous means that you can do either thing equally well. You can push just as hard with your right as you can push with your left. You can pull just as hard as your right as you can pull with your left. An ambidextrous person. When I was in junior high, uh, I met a friend who was ambidextrous, and uh, he could do all kinds of crazy things. This kid, he could throw a perfect spiral with his right hand and with his left hand. He could shoot a fadeaway jumper with his right or with his left, and then I learned he could even write, not just with both hands, but with both hands at the same time. Now, when I was a kid, this was a great talent because I remember my mom, well, my mom always reminds me that in sixth grade, I got 117 detentions. I got in trouble all the time, so moms and dads, if you've got a crazy kid, keep bringing him to church. Keep bringing him to church. The Bible says that those that are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish. Thank God for mom and dad that drug me to church. And so I got into trouble all the time, and when I used to go to detention, we had to write lines. We had to write lines. We had to write sentences of the thing that we did wrong. So I'm in detention, and I had to write this line 100 times. I will not steal the coffee grounds from the teacher's office and pour them into my friend's tuba. I had to write that sentence 100 times in detention. And while in detention, I look over at my friend who is ambidextrous, and he has two notebooks out and two pens, and he's writing the punishment lines at the same time. And I'm like, this dude is an X-man. Like, this is a superpower. I need to learn how to do this. And so I start trying to practice how to be ambidextrous. I start trying to throw spirals with my left and can and shoot jumpers with my left and can. I start trying to write with my left. And the problem with that is my handwriting on the right hand is already atrocious. And when you hand me a pen in my left hand, it looks like you gave a pen to a drunken gorilla. And so like, you can't understand nothing I was writing. And in junior high, I realized I'm not ambidextrous. I'm just right-handed. That's all I can do. There's nothing special in that. And so I was a little frustrated and a little heartbroken. And so I gave up on that dream to be ambidextrous. Well, about this time, I got really involved in my youth group. I got connected on Wednesday nights, and I started going and started really trying to pay attention. And you guys have a fantastic youth ministry here. Is Pastor Cameron in this service? Pastor Cameron is out leading your people, your children, and other places, but they have a great youth program here, and if parents, if, if you have teenagers that haven't been, get them connected so they can grow in their relationship with Jesus. And so I show up on a Wednesday night, and my youth pastor is going to start a brand new series right after I learned what ambidextrous was, and he's doing a series called No Fear. Now, all y'all that were young, like back in the 90s, remember this logo right here of No Fear. Remember this? 
every dude who had a mullet and an IROC Camaro had this bumper sticker on the back of their car. Some of y'all still got it today in the parking lot up in here in Lufkin, Texas. And so I was looking around on Facebook and I found a picture of your pastor riding a mean motorcycle. Look at this, Pastor Jeremy, boom, no fear. Look at that hog that he's riding on. And so back in the day, this was a thing. So my youth pastor was gonna do a series called No Fear. And it was surrounded around Isaiah 41. This was a little junior high dude. I go in and my youth pastor's preaching this. And this is the verse that it was surrounded around. It says this, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And I'm sitting there, I just realized I'm not ambidextrous, I'm not that cool, all I am is right-handed, but then here God is right-handed, his victorious right hand. I'm like, yes, I'm made in God's image. I'm a son of God. Forget you ambidextrous dude, I'm the best, right? And so I get all excited. And I remember that this is the very first Bible study I ever did. You know, all a Bible study is, is when you get an idea and you see what the Bible says about it. So I start asking my grandma to help me. I'm reading commentaries. My dad's helping me find scriptures about God's right hand. And all throughout scripture, it references God's hand of power. I can't read them all for you, but here's a few. Psalm 63, 8, it says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, the power hand. Psalms 89, 13, powerful is your arm, strong is your hand. Your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. Ah, power, God's power hand. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm a man of power in sixth grade. I'm right-handed. And so I get all excited. And all throughout Scripture, God's right hand represents power. In the New Testament, the disciples start arguing one day about who's most important, and they're arguing over who gets to sit next to the right hand of Jesus. Scripture tells us that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he ascends to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We understand that the right hand represents power. It's the hand of strength and authority. The right hand is the hand that delivers. It's the hand that parted the sea. It's a hand of power. About five years ago, Rachel and I walked through a really heavy season where we started to ask God, God, where's your right hand? Where's your power? Where's, where's your authority? We found ourselves facing some problems that were outside of our control. It felt like everything in life was falling apart and we're going, God, where, where are you? Do you even care? Do you even see what's happening in our lives? We said, God, where's your power? Because we feel so weak. God, where is your strength? Because man, I'm just plumb worn out. God, where's your authority? Because we feel super defeated. Where are you? Where's this right hand that I've read about my whole life in your word? It felt like our ministry was falling apart. It felt like our finances were in shambles. It felt like all of these relationships that we had spent years cultivating just started dissipating. And then I started to get stressed out. And anytime you get stressed out at work, you start to bring that stress home. And so now because of my anxiety, I'm bringing depression and fear into our marriage. And that's creating a bunch of turmoil. It felt like everything was hitting the fan. It felt like the cow backed up to the fan and just turned it on high and was spraying stuff all over me. And then not only that, all these other people started bringing their fans over to my house and spraying their junk in my direction. I'm like, my fan's busy enough, y'all, get away from me. And so everything felt like it was in shambles in life. And all I'm saying is, God, where's your right hand? Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself in a season of life where nothing makes sense? Maybe it's now. 
Maybe it's during this uh, corona craze where all the stuff is going on in our nation and even in our cities and in our lives and our family. And there's arguments and there's chaos and our businesses were thriving and now we're going, God, are they even going to survive? What is going on, Father? Where is your right hand? In this season, everything can be exacerbated, exaggerated, magnified. Things that just four months ago would have been this big are now this big, and it creates chaos and turmoil in our minds and our marriages and our hearts. And so when Rachel and I were in this season about five years ago, I did what a lot of Christians do when they start to feel defeated. I read the story of Job. <laughs> Ever been there? And so I start reading the story of Job, and if you don't know the story of Job, he's a guy that was blessed. God blessed him, he had great wealth, he had a great family, all of these incredible things were going his direction, and then one day, the devil shows up. Everyone say, the devil? The devil, he's our enemy south of the border, they know him as Diablo, and so the devil shows up with Job, and he has a plan and a strategy to steal, to kill, and destroy everything good that God has done in his life. The Bible says that his crops were destroyed, that his cattle, that his herds were stolen. It says that he had all of these beautiful homes that through storms and fires and raiders, they were all torn down. And through all of those crazy circumstances, every one of his children were killed. Now, it's kind of funny that I look back that my stress made me feel like Job, because I didn't have none of that stuff going on. But Job is at the end of his rope, and then the enemy didn't only attack externally, he started attacking internally. He got sick. Job's whole body was covered with boils, with sores. And the scripture says the only way that he could find peace was to break a piece of pottery, scrape the boil, and let dogs lick his wounds. That's pretty rough. As all this is happening, one day Job's friends get together and they say, hey, Job, we want to have an intervention. We want to have a conversation with you. You must have done screwed up, Job, and God's mad at you. Isn't it the worst when your friends have bad theology? Can I just tell you that God did not bring tragedy into your life? That we do not serve a schizophrenic God? That he doesn't bless you one day and curse you the next day? That there's a very real enemy who wants to ruin your situation, and he started it since the beginning of time? So let's not get mad at God when we don't understand where his power is. And so his friends, they come and say a bunch of crazy stuff. Then his wife shows up, and Job's wife is a piece of work, and she says, Job, your breath disgusts me. That's pretty depressing. Like, thanks, lady. My whole life's falling apart, and you're talking about my bad breath. And then she says, Job, you should just curse God and die. You should just kill yourself. Life isn't worth living, Job. And he's at the lowest point of his life saying, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Where is your power? This is what I was feeling in the same moment. Rachel and I in this season felt like nothing was working. And so I'm reading through the story of Job, and I come to chapter 23, and I see something that I've never noticed. I'd probably read it a dozen times, but I read over it, and it says this in verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he, speaking of God, he's not there. I look into the future, and I don't see where God is. And backwards in my past, and I don't perceive him. Job's saying, man, my future was looking good, but I don't see God up in my future, and I don't see God in my past. And it says, but on the left hand, when he is working, on the left hand. It's the first time and only time in Scripture that God's left hand is reverenced, is mentioned. He says, I look at the left and I see that he's working and I do not behold him. And he turns to the right, but I don't see him. 
Four directions. Ahead, God, I don't see my future. God, I don't know what you was up to in my past. I don't see you doing nothing with your power, but I see you up to something over here. I see you doing something with your left hand, God. I don't know what it is, but I perceive that you're up to something. And there have been seasons in my life that I'm mad that God's right hand isn't showing up. And in Job's life, there are seasons he's mad that God's right hand of power isn't showing up. And maybe today for you, you're in a moment that you're questioning where God's right hand is. But I came to Lufkin, Texas to tell you all something today, that God's left hand is up to something that you might not see what he's doing, but he's working and he's moving and he's adjusting and he's putting some stuff into position for you, that God is up to something in his left hand. He didn't know what it was, but through all of this, Job stayed faithful. Through losing it all, through physical pain, through emotional and relational abandonment, Job stayed faithful. Why? I believe he was able to stay faithful because he understood that he served an ambidextrous God. That he did not serve a God who only had a powerful right hand, but that God had the capacity to do something great with his left hand. You see, back in junior high, I was wrong. I thought God was right-handed, but God is not right-handed. He does not have a dominant hand. Because if God had a dominant hand, that means that he would have a weaker hand. And there is no weakness in my God. There's not one bit of weakness or lack of strength in who our God is. Everything about our God is strong. He can push with his right and he can push with his left. He can pull with his right and he can pull with his left. He is an ambidextrous God. He's all sufficient. There is no insufficiency in my God. Scripture says that he is enthroned in the heavens. That means that God uses the galaxy as a beanbag, y'all. That his feet are propped up on the earth as a footstool is what the Bible says. There's no weakness in who he is. He holds the oceans of the world in the palm of his hand. We can't hold very much water in the palm of our hand. He can hold the whole ocean in the palm of his hand. This is who our God is. There's no weakness in this father of ours. But yet sometimes we question God, where is your right hand? And so in the season of heaviness for us, I was frustrated that God's right hand wasn't showing up. But I got to tell you, I came here to Lufkin, Texas to teach you one thing, one thing, and it's this. When you don't see his power, you can trust his plan. When you don't see his power, you can trust that his left hand is up to something. You see, God swings a hammer with his right hand, but he's playing chess with his left that he's moving stuff around and changing situations. He's closing doors and opening doors. He's moving out relationships and bringing in relationships. He's setting opportunities up for you that we're crying out, God, where's your power? He's saying, but would you trust my plan? Would you trust what I have in store for you in the future? Would, I, would you believe that I have plans to prosper you and to do some great things in your life? If you can't see his power, you can trust his plan. We sang the song earlier, Waymaker. Waymaker, miracle worker. But the song goes on and it says, even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. So don't be frustrated that you don't see his power. But I need you to have some faith like Job in this season and remember that he's got a plan and he's been moving some chess pieces. He's been working for your benefit because he has great things in store for you. Hebrews chapter one, verse 10, it says, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That everything exists because of God's power and because of his planning. 
The reason the mountains are where they are is because his power to sculpt them there. But the reason that we have air to breathe is because he planned our earth to work how it does. He has a power and a plan in creation. He has the same thing for you. There's no weakness in our God. Job chapter 42 goes on and it says this in verse 11. So, the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more. Everybody say more. Even more than in the beginning. God blessed Job even more. He had more crops. He had more herds. He had more children. He had more blessing in the second half of his life than he did in the first half of his life. And church, can I tell you, it's only halftime. It's only halftime for you. We might feel like the end of our life is in 2020 because of the coronavirus. Can I tell you, God did not fall off the throne in heaven. The Bible says he sits in the throne of heaven and he does as he pleases. God does whatever the junk he wants. He's wearing a t-shirt that says, Mi amo el jefe. I'm the boss up in this piece. God is not afraid. He's not surprised in what happened. So we shouldn't allow fear to come into our situation and stop us from being faithful. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be afraid. I say, well, pastor, that's good. That's exciting. But where else does it say that in scripture? I'll show you. Psalms chapter 23, verse 4. It says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's Coolio. That's Coolio. Coolio took it. But really, David, David said it in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Here it is. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, a shepherd, a good shepherd, which I think that's what the Bible says God is. He's our good shepherd. They hold a rod in one hand. And the rod is the thing that they would use to beat the wolf away from the flock. It's the thing that they would use to stop the intruder. The rod is what they would put in their hand of power. But the staff is the thing that the shepherd would use to guide the sheep and direct the sheep and bring the sheep into the fold. Say, no, 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 little sheep, you're about to fall off a cliff. Come over here, buddy. The good shepherd has power and he has a plan in our life. This is who our God is. Is and when you don't see his power, I'm here to teach you one thing you can trust his plan. You can trust that God has a plan to bring benefit into your life. Y'all you know the verse. Your grandma has it at her house on a knit pillow, your grandma has it on a commemorative plate in her kitchen. Jeremiah 29 11. It says this For I know the p -p 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 plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Right? And plans not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I love those words, prosperity and a hope and a future. And we would equate those with power. I want to have a powerful future. I want to be prospered. We think that only comes through God's power. But it tells us right there, it comes through his plan. That he has a plan to bring prosperity to us. And during this corona craze, you might not see his right hand, but his left hand has been playing chess. You might look around this room and say, man, what happened to Timber Creek? This place was packed. We had hundreds and thousands of people coming every single week. Is the church ever going to bounce back? This church is about to be stronger than it ever was. Because God will take what the enemy meant for evil, and he will turn it for good. Y'all don't know the testimonies yet, but there's testimonies every single week of people getting saved watching from home. When people are scared, you know what they do? They turn to God. And because your pastor is faithful, because the staff is faithful, lives are still being changed. Because you've been investing in this season, God is investing in your life, and he's filling heaven with souls. Why? Because his left hand didn't stop working. And this evidence is found all throughout Scripture. 
All throughout the Bible, we see God's right and left hand working. I think of the story of Abraham. Remember Father Abraham? Had many sons? Many sons have Father Abraham? Actually, he only had one. He only had one. His name was Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have any kids until they got super old. And then God blessed them with a son named Isaac. And one day, when Isaac is a grown man, he's in his 30s, God says to Abraham, yo, Abe, I need you to make a sacrifice. And Abe's like, cool, what's the sacrifice? He says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham's like, what'd you say? <laughs> like, come again and say, what, God? And God's like, I want you to make the greatest sacrifice. And so he gets Isaac, and he gets some stuff together and some servants, and they go up and they start climbing Mount Moriah. And halfway up the mountain, Isaac looks at his dad and says, Dad, I, I, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see the knife, but I don't see the sacrifice. And Abraham says, God will provide. So they get to the top of the mountain and they build the altar and they get the fire and Abraham gets the knife and he says to Isaac, hey son, I need you to trust me. I need you to lay down, you're the sacrifice. Now Isaac is younger and stronger. He could have probably just pushed his dad down the hill and ran home, but he trusted his father on earth and he trusted his father in heaven. And he was obedient to the process that he did not understand and he laid down on the wood. And Abraham lifted the knife in the air, and Scripture says right before he struck, the heavens shouted out, and God said, Abraham, stop. I'm not going to ask you to make a sacrifice that I have not yet made. You see, in my plan, I'm going to sacrifice my one and only son, but I'm not going to ask you to do that. And as Isaac gets up off the altar, Abraham looks over, and Scripture says that he sees a ram caught in the thicket. What Abraham didn't understand is why he was crying out, God, where is your power? That up the left side of the mountain, God was bringing the ram. You see, God is working things out that we don't yet see. He provided the sacrifice in the moment that he needed it. And sometimes we say, God, where is your power? And God's in heaven saying, well, have you climbed the mountain? We want God to show up. We want God to provide the ram. We want God to do the thing, but we aren't obedient to the thing that he's already called us to do. You know all I'm good at doing as a pastor is knowing how to take the next right step. I don't know how to do nothing except take the next right step. Some of these leaders, they know how to do things in the next 10 years. I don't even know what I'm doing in two months. But I know that in then I'm going to listen to God and say, God, what's the next right step? That's all you have to do. You've got to trust his plan, that his plan is going to bring those things into fruition in your life. The place where you are, God has called you, and he's going to work it out for your benefit. If you've ever wondered where God's power is, you're in good company. <laughs> You're not alone. If you hear me preaching this message and you're thinking about some fear in your own mind, some fear in your own heart, you're in great company. Because this book is full of men and women who are afraid. It's full of people who didn't understand what God was doing. I think of Ruth. Ruth was afraid. She had lost her husband and she was taking care of a friend and they were hungry. And so she's walking through a field just picking up little seeds of grain off the ground and put them in the pockets of her dress so she'd go home and eat it later. And she's going, God, where is your power? And what she doesn't know is that God's plan is bringing Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, to come and deal with the issues that she is facing because God has a left-handed plan. I think of the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon has an army that he has to fight and he has 30,000 men and he's feeling strong and that army dwindles down to 300 dudes. And Gideon's going, God, where is your power? But what Gideon doesn't realize is that God's left hand is in his enemy's camp bringing dissension. So they start getting nervous about Gideon because God's left hand is always working for our benefit. I think of the story of King Saul. Y'all remember big old King Saul? King Saul, he's standing there on the battle line for 40 days and this giant nine-foot-tall, nine-inch human battle tank is walking out talking smack 
for 40 days, and Saul's going, God, where is your power? Send some bears out of the woods to eat this dude. Where's that lightning that fell? Like, come on, kill this guy, God. But here comes God's left hand with a little shepherd boy. The left hand of God brings the answer to the king who doesn't even know what he needs. God's left hand, his plan, is always bringing the exact thing that we need. I think of the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah gets called to go to Nineveh to reach some evil people, but he gets scared and freaked out. He gets in a boat, goes the other direction to Tarsus. A storm gets blowing in the sea, and the fishermen take Jonah. They throw him overboard. Jonah thinks he's done skis. He thinks he's about to die. He thinks he's about to be dead. He's saying, God, where's your power? And then God swims in with his left hand, and he swallows him up with a fish, and he puts him back on course. Can I tell you that even if you're outside of God's will, his plan is still there for you. He's still planning to bring restoration and get you back into the thing that he's called you to do. I think of Moses. I think Moses is the greatest representation of the ambidextrous God. Moses, when he's born, a decree goes out that all of the Israelite baby boys must be killed. And so Moses' mom is not about that. And she's like, uh-uh, not my baby, right? And so she's like hiding him in the pantry and stuff for a couple of years. And as Moses grows and gets older, she can't hide him anymore. And so God tells her to do something crazy. She says, hey, Jochebed, I need you to get a, 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 a basket and cover it with tar and go and put your baby down in the Nile River. Someone should have called CPS on Moses' mom because that's crazy, right? And so she goes down there with, with Moses in a little basket and she sends him down the way and the Nile River and God's hand of power is guarding Moses. He's protecting him from crocodiles and hippopotamuses, right? He's guarding him as he's going down the Nile River. But what Jochebed didn't know is that God's left hand was bringing the princess of Egypt out for a pool party. And so she's down there taking a little dip in the hot afternoon sun, and she sees Moses, and we see God's right hand and left hand come together in power and a plan, and Moses is drawn out of the situation, and he becomes the deliverer of God's people. This is how God works. He's up to something, y'all. Jochebed, she did not know that God was moving this lady down to have a pool party, but yet in it, God does the miraculous. And Moses' whole life is a representation of the ambidextrous God. Moses grows up in the palace, and he doesn't fit anywhere. You ever felt like you don't fit anywhere? He's going, man, I don't understand, God. Where's your power? Why am I here? But God has a plan. Because he grew up, he now has access to the palace in the future. One day, Moses, he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he gets mad and frustrated, and he goes out, and he gets into a fight with an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand. And after that happens, some people start talking smack about Moses. And Moses gets nervous, and he gets upset, and he's going, God, how did you let me get caught? God, where is your power? God directs him to run to Midian. So God goes to Midian, but as he's being led by the left hand of God in Midian, he meets his wife. Come on, somebody, that's good news. He meets his wife, he has his burning bush moment, and he learns how to navigate the wilderness because he allowed himself to follow the confusing, unseen, sometimes left hand of God's plan. Then God tells him, Moses, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And so he does it, and Pharaoh's like, no, heck no. I don't want to lose my workforce, right? I'm not letting these people go. And so God's right hand shows up in mighty ways, remember? He starts dropping plagues on Egypt. There's like frogs showing up and hail and blood all over the place, like crazy stuff. And they see God's right hand. And finally, Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. We don't even want you here. But Moses had this other issue the whole time before they went out of Egypt. 
Moses is stressed about how he's going to pay for the needs of a million people. They're broke. They've been slaves for 400 years. They don't got a savings account. They don't got a nest egg or a 401k. They don't got jack. And Moses is going, God, how am I going to pay for the stuff that we need while we're out in the wilderness? But you see, God's left hand had been working. There's a little verse of scripture that we read over sometimes in Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. It says this as they're leaving Egypt. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. And they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Can you get the picture? The slaves have been there 400 years. All the crazy plagues is happening. As they're marching out of Egypt, people are coming out of their homes and throwing them gold necklaces and gold earrings and bringing them fat stacks of cash and giving them the keys to their Bentley. I don't know what they're doing, but they're giving them everything that they could have potentially needed. Egypt was the wealthiest nation on the planet. Not just then, but even in today's standards. There was more wealth in Egypt than any other nation has ever had. And the scripture says that they lavishly gave to the Israelites and provided all of their needs. You see, God's left hand was planning to prepare for Moses before Moses' mom even put him in the baby basket. Can I go just a little bit deeper? You see, God's provision for Moses started with a guy back in the day named Joseph. Y'all remember Joseph? Joseph was Moses' great, 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 great grandpa. Moses was, Joseph was just a dude. He had a whole bunch of brothers but the Bible says that his dad loved him the most, which is kind of jacked, and his dad gave him a Technicolor dream coat. Well, all of his brothers got mad that he got given this coat, so they throw him down into a pit because they want to kill him. And he's down in the pit screaming, God, where's your power? God's saying, I got a plan. And here comes a caravan of slave traders that are headed to Egypt. So they sell Joseph to the slave traders, and now he gets drugged all the way to Egypt, the first Israelite in Egypt. And while he's there, he gets sold into slavery to a guy named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar, he's got a freaky cougar wife, and this lady wants to get her dirty mitts all over Joseph. And Joseph's like, uh-uh, get away from me, crazy, dirty lady. And so she lies on him, and he gets thrown into prison, right? So now he's in prison crying out, God, where's your power? I was a good son. You got me thrown in a pit. Now you got me thrown in a prison. God, where's your right hand? But he forgot that God's left hand had been working. And so here comes his new cellmate. And you know who his cellmate is? A dude who used to work for the king. And so while they're in prison together, the cellmate has a dream. He doesn't know how to interpret it. And Joseph is given the ability to interpret the dream. And he says, yo, when you get out, if you see the king, tell him I'm in here. Tell him I can interpret his dream. And so the dude's like, bet, Joseph, I got you, bro. Then he leaves prison and forgets the dude for three years. He forgets him for three years. Sometimes we get frustrated that God isn't answering in a timing that we want it. Can I tell you that God is seldom early, but he's never late. He's never late. He has a plan. You don't know what he's doing. Sometimes playing chess takes a long time. And so he's down there in prison not knowing what to do. And then the king has a dream. He has a dream that nobody in the kingdom can interpret. And so finally, Joseph's cellmate remembers. He goes, oh, king, my boy. Oh, Joe, he's down in prison, man. And he knows how to interpret dreams. You've got to get that dude up here. And so they bring Joseph from the prison to the palace and he interprets the dream. The Bible says that he's put in second in command of all of Egypt. Y'all know the story. And so the dream that the king had was that there are going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. There's about to be a whole lot. There's about to be a whole little, not very much. And Joseph, he gets a strategy from God. He gets a plan from God. 
and they start building barns and storehouses and stockpiles of grain and food and provision and then the famine hits and all of the world starts to go hungry because there's no rain. There's a famine. And scripture tells us that people groups from all over the planet start traveling to Egypt and guess what they're bringing with them? All the money they got. They're bringing all the gold and diamond and rubies and everything they've got and they show up at Joseph's front door and they give him bags of gold for bags of grain. And in this plan, Egypt becomes wealthy. And can I tell you the very gold that they heaped on Moses and the children of Israel when they walked into the wilderness was the same gold that was raised by his great-grandfather Joseph because God has a plan. The plan that God has laid for you started before your problem. Before you even started to pray for the situation that you're in, God knew the need that you would have and he started to work the pieces out. God had an answer before you even cried out in pain. So Joseph, he raises all this money, he has all these funds, he has all this power, but he doesn't have the one thing that he really misses, his family. He's going, God, you've done all this, but Where's your power? Where's my family? Where are my bros? Where's my dad at? I'm lonely here in Egypt. I'm the only Israelite. And then one day, knock, knock, knock. Here comes Joseph's brothers. And they come in. They don't even recognize Joseph because he's got all these fancy Egyptian clothes on. And they come in and Joseph has grace and mercy on them. And they have restoration and forgiveness because God's left hand brought the family that he thought he had lost all the way back into reconciliation with him. He'd been crying out for God's power his whole life. And now he sees God's plan. And he says something that's incredible that I want us to catch. He says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, you plotted evil against me. Hey bros, you were my enemies. You tried to steal and kill and destroy everything that I had, but God turned it into good. God turned that situation around in order to bring about this present result, the saving of many lives. God turned it around. He turned it around. He grabbed the thing to turn something. You've got to push it and pull it. Our ambidextrous God can turn your situation around. Let me tell you something. In your family, God wants to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. He wants to use your testimony. I know your husband cheated on you. It's time to forgive him. God wants to turn that into a testimony to help somebody else. I know you lost your job. He wants to use that heartbreak to turn it for somebody else. I know you've lost some children. I know you can't have a baby. I know that you're sitting there single and going, God, are you ever gonna bring me my Boaz? Can I tell you, God will use that heartbreak in your life and he will turn it for good. He will take your tumultuous situation and turn it into a testimony if you let him. If you understand that his plan is to bring you some prosperity. And it's not just Old Testament, it's New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, and we know that in all things, I don't know what your situation is, but it's wrapped up in all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes, that God has good in store for you that God does not bring destruction, that God is not schizophrenic. He doesn't do negative one day and positive the next day, that he wants to bring blessing into your life. And you've got to get a hold of the fact that God always operates within the consistency of his character. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve a consistent God. So if he did it for Gideon, he's going to do it for you. If he did it for Ruth, he's going to do it for you. If he saved Daniel from the mouth of the lion, he's going to do it for you. If the walls fell for Joshua around the city of Jericho, they're going to fall for you. That no matter what your situation is, God acts in the consistency of his character. He's not only full of power, but we can trust the plan that he has for us. Isaiah 59 verse 1, it says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. God says, is my arm too short? God says, I can reach into your past and heal it. I can reach into your future and set it up. God's arm is not too short to meet the need that you have. Isaiah 49, verse 16, it says, see, so good, man. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands, plural. That on both of God's hands, He's tattooed your name. That right in the middle of his power is your name. And right in the middle of his plan is your situation. And so if in this season you feel forgotten, you feel like God isn't with you, you feel like he's not aware of what's going on, I want you to get this mental picture that God has your name tattooed on these mighty hands. Every day he sees your name and thinks, today do they need the power or today am I still working the plan? That God remembers who you are and where you are because he's an ambidextrous God. So I heard that verse my youth pastor preached on in that goofy sermon series, no fear. But now as a man, I understand the power of the verse. It's the first verse I read today. Let me read it again. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not. Hey, church, don't be scared. Don't be scared. God sees you. He sees what you're going through. He understands the circumstance and the situation. He understands that it doesn't add up. He knows. God's not surprised. But he says, fear not. Fear not, why? For I am with you. He's with you. He's near. When we pray, we do not pray to a far off distant being. We pray to our Father, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All we have to do is call his will down. This book is full of promises. We just have to grab onto them. We just have to grab onto the promises that God has for us. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Don't be distressed. Don't be freaked out. Don't be losing sleep. Scripture says that God gives rest to those he loves. So if you go to sleep tonight and can't sleep, pray about it. Don't worry about it. Pray about it. God, you told me that you give rest to those who love. So I'll put the situation that's outside of my control into your hands. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God and I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. But if you don't see my right, you can trust my left. You can trust that my left hand is working for you. If you're here today, and the situations of life have been freaking you out, I wanna pray for you. So in just a second, I'm gonna ask that if 
fear or anxiety or stress or nervousness about the future has seemed to come into your mind, nervousness about what's gonna happen in our country, nervousness about what the next steps are, I wanna pray for you. And my hand's gonna be up and Rachel's hand's gonna be up because we got a lot. There's a lot of days that I wake up and go, oh man, I don't know what to do. But I know that God does. And so if you have some stuff that you want me to pray over, right now I just want you to raise your hand up all, all over the room. That's you. Father, you see these hands and you see these hearts. And Lord, you know about every situation. You know about every detail. You know every single fact of the matter. And Lord, we lift this situation to you and we say, God, we trust you. We trust you have all the power to fix it. And we trust that you have the perfect timing in your plan to make a way. Lord, I bring every marriage to you this morning. Every marriage that's had stress and turmoil and anxiousness and anxiety and bickering in the home. And Father, I speak peace that surpasses understanding. I know he screwed up. I know she screwed up. I know there's a story. I know there's some mess. But God, I pray that you would help bring the temperature in the home down and bring some wisdom, God. Yelling and screaming don't help nobody except the devil's strategy. Father, I ask for calmness in homes. God, I ask for every parent here that you would give them patience. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our minds. We invite you into our hearts. God, help us be patient with our kids. Patient if they keep peeing the bed or patient if they keep stealing the car. No matter what it is, Father, help us be patient in the process and trust your power and trust your plan. Father, I bring everyone's finances to you. Whether they lost their job, whether they've been furloughed, or whether their business is exploding in this time and they can't manage the growth, Lord, I ask that you would be with them, that you would bring them partners, that you would open doors, that you would make ways that no other way man or woman could make, that you would be the provider. We thank you, God, and we trust you. Father, this morning, help us to leave remembering that we don't see your power, we can trust your plan. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you hear that message, but you aren't in a relationship with Jesus. God had a plan for that too. Scripture says that all of us have sinned. I know I super have. If a list of all my sins went up on the screen, you would not want to hear me preach this morning. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that meant that we were going to be separated from God. But that broke our Father's heart because all He wants to do is be close to us. God, in the beginning, He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and hung out every day. They were going on nature hikes every day. But then sin came in and that sin separated them and it broke our Father's heart. He wanted to be close. So He sent His one and only Son to pay the price. You see, the price of sin is death. Back, back, back in the Bible days, the way that people would be forgiven of sin is to take an animal to a priest. The priest would kill the animal and the blood of the animal would cover their sins, but that was messy. And it meant that God's people couldn't connect to God that only a priest could, and that's not how God wanted it. So God said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna send the sacrifice. I'm gonna send my one and only son. I'm gonna do something that nobody else would have to do and give my son so that the world could be forgiven. 
And Jesus came, was born at Christmas time as a baby. He lived a sinless life and then he was killed so that we could call upon him. Because through the blood that he shed, we could be washed clean. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Sometimes in churches, there's a lot of shame. And I'm really glad that that's not the culture of this church. That you can come no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, you're welcome in this place. If you're watching online and feel like you can't walk into this church, like the, wall, the walls would fall down if you came in. It's not true. That's the devil lying to you. You're welcome in this place. That God loves us so much, no matter what we did, that he wants to be in a relationship. That our heavenly father, he's standing on the front porch of heaven, going, come on home, son. Come on home, daughter. I'm gonna meet you with open arms, not a clenched fists. His hands are open to you. And so if you're far from God this morning, and if you were to step into eternity, you're not sure if you'd spend eternity with him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if I'm talking to you, and you wanna ask Jesus into your heart, don't let another day pass by. Today is the day of salvation. Join the dozen people that asked Jesus in their heart in the first service. At Nacogdoches, online, wherever you are, if you're watching this message in three years, today is the day of salvation for you. On the count of three, I want you to just raise your hand up and look at me. I'm not gonna stand you up or embarrass you or nothing. It's just saying, hey God, I wanna pray this prayer. On the count of three, raise it up. One, two, three. That's you this morning. Yep, I see you all over the room. Yep, I see y'all. I see y'all over here. I see you in the back, all, all over the room. Any, yep, I see you. Yep, I see this couple right here. Yep, I see you, ma'am. Anybody else? Yep, I see you in the back. Anyone say, yeah, I see you, ma'am, all over the room. Anyone else say, today's my day. Church, would you pray this with me? This is not a magical concoction of words. It's just a prayer from your heart to God's heart, asking him to forgive you of your sins. Everyone pray this out loud. Dear God, come on, pray it out loud with me. Dear God, today, forgive me my sin and make me new. From this day forward, I'm gonna follow you. Even when I mess up, I'm not gonna walk away. I'm gonna be faithful. From this day forward, I believe because of your love, my best days are still ahead of me. We thank you, Lord, in your name, amen.